It's Wednesday at noon and you're watching this program because what else would you be doing? Or maybe you're not watching it at Wednesday at noon, but after we're done making it. Whatever the case, I'm glad that you're here. This is The Deep End. Welcome back to The Deep End. It is November 14th, 2018, and I am your host, Tim Hatch, and I'm so glad that you're joining us. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm also glad that I'm joined on the couch by my friend over here, Josh Pereira. Hello, Hello. Josh. Hello. How are you? Good. Long time no see on the couch. (laughs) Back in your good graces, I see. Back in the good (laughs) graces. Yes. Play it safe, my friend. Yes. No, I'm just kidding. But good to see you, and also say hello (laughs) to the tech team. Hello, tech team. Woo! Okay. Long time no see. Guess what? Someday we could be arrested for saying that. Really? Yes. (laughs) National Review has this article out. Long time no see is now considered a derogatory phrase toward Asians. (laughs) Now, (laughs) this is a classic case of political correctness getting absolutely crazy. Uh, the article reads, a student at Colorado State University was reportedly told that the expression "longtime no see was an example of non-inclusive language because it is apparently derogatory toward Asians. Now, the funny thing about this is that the director of inclusion, diversity and, conclu- d- diversity and inclusion uh, at Cl- Colorado State University is named Zara Al-Saloum. Uh, that sounds Arabic to me. Yeah. So uh, I'm sorry. Maybe that's derogatory. I don't know. <laughs> That I just that I just project a false ethnicity on that person. I don't know. Um, do you know, Josh Pereira, that these people who work for universities as uh, the diversity directors? This is a huge paying job. It's like three hundred. They make three hundred thousand dollars a year to make really? sure that everybody feels included. Wow! I wish I got that three three hundred thousand. I try to make everybody feel included in the kingdom of heaven. I don't get paid that much money. I, I was gonna say I could. You could teach me. I could be diverse, man. <laughs> three hundred and it's like three hundred and some odd thousand dollars a year to be the guy that makes sure that no one gets offended at a university. And the history of universities was that the word university means in unity diversity, mm-hmm. which means all ideas should be expressed so that we can learn from each other. And now it's like no, we we've got to suppress ideas. This is what's happening on university campuses across the nation. Yeah, man. They're becoming institutions of fools, if you ask me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and all it's kinds a snowflake of factory. Yeah, it's a snowflake factory. It's a good word. That's right. Be careful where you send your kids to school. I always tell you this. Um, actually, it's not about where you send them to school. It's about what you send them to school for. And I would just say, like, just parenting advice here, because I am a parent, and my oldest is about to go to college in a couple of years here. But I would say it's not about where you go to school. It's about what they go to school for. So all the craziness, evidently, is happening in... <laughs> In the humanities department of of these institutions of higher learning, Uh, you know, Brown University is the one that a few years ago they had a debate about uh, whether America was a rape culture. I don't know if you heard about this. I did not. Is America a rape culture? They invited a woman speaker who had herself been raped. This is way back, I think, a couple of years ago, who had herself been raped as a child and has been sexually and physically abused by her boyfriend as an adult. And she was arguing for the case that America is not by nature, a rape culture. And uh, the students at Brown University protested her coming and sharing her ideas because they figured they thought that she would trigger them. She would physically harm them with her words. Uh, This is where we're getting to as a country. It's kind of scary. It's kind of freaky deaky, if you ask me. (laughs) These people need to read the Constitution, the First Amendment, and uh, remember that we have freedom of speech. Yeah. 
I don't know. Yeah, that's... What do you think? Yeah, man, I, I just feel like nowadays... What do you kids. think on Facebook? Why don't you let us know? Yeah, let us know in the let comments. Let us know. And That's also on YouTube, because on YouTube, you can be uh, commenting. We're on live, not on just Facebook, but also on YouTube. And um, <clears throat> that brings me to something that's very important for our time together today. We put a video together because a lot of people need to subscribe yeah. on YouTube. And some people just don't know how to do it. And they don't know how to do it. In fact, I was talking about this with my parents the other day. Hi, mom and dad. I know you guys watch. Um, <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Hatchelow. Yes. And they were like, well, I didn't even know the deep end was back. I'm like, we're six episodes in and you're my parents for heaven's sakes. <laughs> <laughs> you should be the first ones on saying hello. Anyway, they weren't on and they weren't watching and they didn't even know we had six episodes uh, posted of the deep end. So I had to literally walk them through on their iPad how to subscribe on their YouTube app, uh, on the YouTube app on their iPad, and then the notifications and how to make sure that you can always get notifications. Now, you're watching this already, so you found us, which is good. I'm glad that you found us. But here's a video that we're putting together. We're going to put it on our social media program, on our social media feeds on the church too, I hope, yes? Oh, yeah. uh, to instruct people on how to find the deep end. So watch this. We want to make tuning into the deep end as easy as possible. First, open your preferred browser on your computer or smart device. Next, navigate to www.thedeepend.tv. On the page, click Watch Now. This will bring you to our YouTube channel. On the right side, you will see a red box with the word subscribe. Click it. And don't forget to click the bell near the subscribe link to receive personal notifications every time the Deep End goes live. That way you never miss an episode and you join us right from the start each week on the Deep End. So there you have it. That's how you subscribe. And if you found this already, good. Share that video. When we share it on our Deep End Instagram, uh, and if you go to Waters Church, the Waters Church Instagram, please share it, like it, share it with your friends. Make sure that people can tune in uh, to the Deep End. We want to build that subscriber base, too, because what happens when we get a certain number of subscribers? We get like a... Uh, like, get a custom URL, so we'll I be I thought like we got a toaster. YouTube. <laughs> like YouTube. I want one of those four sliced toasters. Four of them. Yes. Does YouTube send that? Out to you when you get a certain number of subscribers. <laughs> Once you get a certain number, <laughs> come on, help us they, get the they send four slice toaster, friends. We need you. Or one of the little trophies. I just remember too that I did not complete the thought about the crazy departments at colleges. Yeah. So yeah, it's not about. <laughs> let's go back to that segment. Uh, jumping all over the place here early on in this uh, episode. That event, evidently, like the humanities departments. So if you're going to those, if you're going to go and major in something like. Um, uh, I don't know, uh, gender studies or, um, you know, lesbian ballet dance theory or something like that. <laughs> You're going to get this crazy culture of uh, watch out for what you say or they're going to brand you a heretic and a bigot for the rest of your life at college campuses. And these places, again, are becoming the institutions of the crazy and you got to watch out for. It. So go and find out how to do something with your hands at college, like go to an engineering school or go to a doctor's school or go to a nursing school or go to a elementary education school or something, something that's productive that actually demands you actually produce something and help people, not just theorize about the human condition. That's my job. I'll theorize about the human condition. That's why you're here. I'm here to tell you what's wrong with the world, what's wrong with humans, and how to fix it. But I only have one answer. His name is Jesus. All right. Let's get into uh, the book of Revelation. This is part two of what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's roll it. Revelation. Revelation. 
Okay, so Revelation 2.7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And last time we were together, uh, we talked about the seven churches, uh, the first three churches uh, in the book of Revelation. Uh, We talked about the church in Ephesus. And again, just so we are aware of our study in the book of Revelation here on the deep end, the big overarching theme of this study is that Revelation is about what is most real. In other words, what you see on television, what you see, uh, you know, in invisible in reality right now in your country, in your world, that that's real, but there's something beyond that that is most real. There is an eternal struggle between good and evil. There's an eternal struggle between those who are of the Lord and his work and those who are following the enemy of the of our flesh, of our of our of our faith, uh, Satan, and there is this great struggle, and the world, the scriptures talk about this, is under the control of Satan, but underneath his control, there is a body of Christ who is subversively following uh, the leadership of our Lord Jesus Christ, and so that's Revelation in a nutshell. Revelation is God's instruction manual to those who look at their world and they see the craziness, they see. The insanity. They see a world that in so many respects looks like it's falling to pieces, and yet we have faith that in all things God is still working, and he's bringing his sons and daughters out of the system of this world and into his family. And that's the most exciting thing about the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is your guidebook to knowing how to stand strong in a world that seems completely antithetical to your faith. Uh, So that's the overarching theme of this study. And we are so far only uh, two chapters through, and we're going to get hopefully a little bit into chapter three. Uh, So we looked at the first three churches, Ephesus, which we said successfully apathetic. They were doing great as a church on the outside, but on the inside, they they had lost their first love. Jesus says that to them. Smyrna, the struggling, persecuted church who is impoverished physically, but Jesus says, you are rich because God has given rich faith to those who struggle in this world. Again, what you see on the outside is not necessarily what is most real. See? That's how it all lines up. And then Pergamum, the church in Pergamum, was a church that was tolerating immorality. And as much as the church was doing well in some areas, they were also tolerating some sexual immorality amongst their ranks. And now we get to uh, the next couple of churches, and we'll see how far we can get because time is limited here on the Deep End episodes. But what you have to understand is that each church was struggling in one way or another with the world and its system. Each church and the Christians in those churches were struggling in one way or another with the world and its system. Does that sound familiar, Christian? Does that sound familiar to you, Josh? Yes. Yes. We're going to struggle with the world. We're always going to feel a bit uncomfortable about the crazy going on in our world. If you are, even right now, looking at you know what you see on the news, what you hear on TV, what you what, whatever you're experiencing right now, maybe even in your workplace, and you say, man, the world just seems crazy to me, that's a good thing. Like, if you don't think the world is crazy, that's because you're crazy. (laughs) And you fit right in with them. Um, But for those who are believers in Christ, you have to have some sense of uncomfortability with what you see in the world. 1 Peter chapter 2 tells us that we are strangers and we are exiles. We are foreigners and we are exiles. We are not meant to fit in in this present world. Our home is our citizenship, Paul says, is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior who is going to come from heaven and bring us back to himself. So if you don't think this world is crazy, it's because you are of the world. If you do think this world is crazy, it's because you belong to Christ. Or 
you should belong to Christ. Like there's a lot of people out there that look at the world and say, why is it so crazy? And they don't know why and because they don't have Christ in them. And this is why I think coming to Christ is the eye opener for those of you who struggle with the craziness of this world, but you don't have that answer. You need to come to Christ. You need to get on the team of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you need to see that this world is crazy for a reason. It's run by a crazy man who is full of himself. That man is Satan or demon or angel, whatever you want to call him. And he is full of himself and everybody who is full of themselves follows his lead and we are not of those kinds of people. We are of the people who fought. We are the people who follow Jesus, who, though he had all things in the Father, surrendered all things for the sake of those whom he loves. Amen. And so that's a lot of what you have to see here in these churches in the book of Revelation and the letters to the churches, the seven churches in the book of Revelation. So we talked about three. We're going to talk about a few more. Let's see, depending on time, how far we get. Thyatira. Thyatira, which I thought, what a cool name Thyatira is. It's uh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I have nothing more to say about that. Uh, I have this subtitle, though, for the church in Thyatira, based on what Jesus says to them, that they are teaching immorality. Okay, so think about this. If Pergamum was tolerating immorality, Thyatira took it another step, and they were teaching Immorality. So this, it wasn't just that some people were practicing sexual immorality in the church and some people were practicing uh, uh, celebrating the pagan feasts and the festivals, which, you know, sacrifice to idols and false gods and all that kind of stuff. Uh, that was happening in Pergamum. But in Thyatira, they didn't just do it. They actually promoted it. And they said, let's all, let's all do it. Let's all partake in these things. So here's what Jesus says to Thyatira. Check this out. Verse 18 of chapter 2. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira write... The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Okay, that's a important term there because Jesus is saying when he references his flames of fire eyes and his burnished bronze feet, these are biblical terms for his eternal judgment. Okay, so this is not good news for Thyatira. He is coming as judge. He is coming as righteous, sovereign judge over the church. And he says, I know your works your love and your faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. So there are some things that he has to say to Thyatira that are positive in the sense that they are getting better in some, in some pretty significant ways. They are growing in love, faith, service, patience, endurance. These things are important for them, and this is what Jesus notices. But it goes downhill from there pretty fast because <laughs> it's the longest um, message to all seven churches. It is also uh, the st most strongly worded uh, letter to the seven churches. And so here's, here's what he says to them. Uh, he says, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants, teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat foods sacrificed to idols. He says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Okay, let's stop here because he mentions the problem in Thyatira is this woman, this self-proclaimed prophetess named Jezebel. Now, her name was not Jezebel. Uh, the name Jezebel, not exactly a name that caught on in the baby naming industry uh, in the world, <laughs> in the world's history. Um, so Jezebel, what is that name? Biblically... And, you know, think about Jews who would be reading this 
document, the, the book of Revelation, primarily in the first century. Biblically, Jezebel was the wife of a wicked king in Israel's history named Ahab, and she literally ran the country into the ground in sexual immorality. I mean, she had uh, 450 prophets under her uh, uh, employ. Uh, they misled God's people. They taught them how to engage in pagan revelry of her uh, ancestry. She was not an, a Jew. She was from another nation. But she literally led the nation away from God. And that's during the time of Elijah. And Elijah is God's prophet who was raised up during the reign of Ahab and Jezebel to challenge God's people to get back to God. And that's the great showdown in Mount Carmel in 1 Kings chapter 17. Elijah shows up and says, Lord, you, you know, you guys, you pagan Baal prophets, you call on your God and I'll call on the God of Israel and the God that answers by fire, he's the God. And so they cut themselves and they celebrate and they call on their God, nothing happens. And, they, and then Elijah says, you know, God, I know you always hear me. So send the fire, fire falls. All the people say, the Lord is God, the Lord is God, Elijah is heralded as a hero. Uh, it doesn't go really well for him after that, but nonetheless, I'm just trying to tell you that in the in the context to the church in Thyatira that Jesus writes to, when he says <laughs> Jezebel, Jesus is referencing probably the most pagan, most sexually immoral woman in Israel's history. And so this is not pleasant speech. Yeah, Jesus is challenging them big time. But but was there an actual woman who was leading in this church? Yeah, it probably was a woman, <clears throat> but Jesus calls her Jezebel. So uh, her name was probably something else. And this is an incredibly important way to see the Bible is that the Bible has terms for people and names that, you know, carry weight. Uh, and so Jesus is not one of those kind of leaders who minces words when he has a heart, when he has a problem with someone, he's going to call you out on it. And it's not going to be pretty, especially when you're doing something that hurts his people. Um, and so let's just do a little differentiation too here, because this is, this is important. There's a lot of people in the church who struggle with sexual morality and Jesus would not come to you and say, you're a Jezebel. <laughs> All right. Okay. He's talking about somebody who was a leader in the church or at least Again, notice the phrase, she calls herself a leader. So she took the authority that probably wasn't hers, and she started to teach God's people and seduce them to practice sexual morality. There's a huge difference between the person who struggles with sexual sin in the church, whom God loves and wants to set free from that sin and sanctify and purify, and people who teach it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Because we can't lump them all into one. No. And there's going to be people who listen to this podcast, and that's your struggle, and I get it. And, and, and you probably think, oh, I knew it. Jesus hates me. No, no. No, he he hates false prophets. That's there's no question about that. Uh, in Matthew chapter seven, he when he says those very famous words, "Depart from me, for I never knew you, workers of iniquity." He's talking about false teachers in the church. People don't get that, but in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, that's who he's talking to when he says that. "Depart from me, workers of iniquity. I never knew you." He's talking about false prophets. And so here we have an example of a false prophet. And and a false prophet is anybody who's going to teach God's people to engage in sexual sin. Now. I have bad news for you because there is a whole bunch of denominations in America right now that are doing this very same thing, that are sec celebrating sexual immorality in the church, teaching it, endorsing it, celebrating it. What does that look like in today's? Well, today, I mean, today, I mean, I hate to talk on this because I seem like I talk about it about a lot, but there are mainline churches. Mainline churches are the big white churches on main streets in, U in every town USA. Yeah. We have them in New England. Actually, they all started in New England. Uh, and all these old uh, denominations from the Puritan days, they kind of 
you know, they disavowed the gospel, many of them, not all of them, but many of them disavowed the gospel years ago. And when you disavow the gospel, when you deny the Lord Jesus Christ as the way to the truth, as the way, the truth, and life, when you deny the miracles of the Bible, when you deny God's sovereignty, I mean, <laughs> all bets are off from that point forward. Yeah. You know, And so today, you have a lot of mainline churches celebrating homosexual marriage. You have a lot of mainline churches um, uh, ordaining and uh, putting into office uh, practicing homosexuals, unrepented homosexuals. It's constant. Uh, in Rhode Island of this year, check this out. <laughs> this is crazy. In Rhode Island this year, over the summer, the leader of the mainline church denominations... There's like a group of them. They're called the Council of Churches in Rhode Island. The leader of the churches took a sabbatical uh, for seven months. Do you know why he took a sabbatical for seven months? Why? To transition from a man to a woman. This is in the <laughs> Providence Journal news section. This is from <laughs> this is from May 14th. And, uh, you know, this is what's happening in some of these churches. And they are literally like celebrating this. I go to, um, years ago, I did a series in our church called Faith in New England. That, that was a great series. Well, we, we went to um, we went to Michael's home state up in Maine. We went to Brunswick, Maine. We had some good lobster stew. Remember the lobster stew? Good lobster <laughs> stew. Anyway, you got to say lobster like that. Lobster. You got to say it like that. Anyway, uh, so we went to Harriet Beecher Stowe's home church. Now, this is a church where she, during communion, Harriet Beecher Stowe, during communion, gets a vision for the story that would become Uncle Tom's Cabin and literally become the impetus, the fictional story that would become the impetus that would, that would um, uh, lead to the Emancipation Proclamation of Abraham Lincoln and eventually the Civil War and eventually the freedom of the slaves. Like this woman sees that vision in a church in New England, in Brunswick, Maine. It was a powerful place to visit. But today, when we went and visited, hanging from the outside of the church was not a cross, was not the name of the church, was not the American flag, was the pride flag. Yeah. And this is like, you go and you see like this is what's happening in many denominations. Like this becomes, and, and I get it. There's a lot of Christians out there and, and maybe even some professing Christians who believe, well, let's just, you know, it's the way of the world and we'll celebrate and whatever. And I, I understand those people, but to celebrate to the extent that it becomes the most important thing in your church, right? Yeah. That's where it goes to. And it's, 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 it's um, a distortion of truth. And I hear some of you, you're listening and say, Pastor, in almost every podcast, you say something about the LGBT community. The reason why I have to say is stuff like this, because it's everywhere. It's, yeah, and, it's and, become and so prevalent. It's though. prevalent. It's constant. It's being pushed upon our children in their schools, pushed upon our culture in pop culture and media and, and Hollywood movies and films. It's pushed upon us through the government and through laws and, inter and all this stuff. And I am of the opinion, live and let live. And if you're not a Christian and you're not in my church, do whatever you want with your body, as long as you're not hurting somebody else. I don't care. All right? That's not my job. My job, though, is to care for God's people, God's church. And Jesus cares for his church. Uh, and the reason why I care for his church is because I am an under-shepherd under the great shepherd named Jesus, and he cares for his church. And what he really worry, uh, is concerned about, he doesn't worry, what he is really concerned about with his church is how they treat their bodies and how they handle their money. There are two great sins in the church that we have always struggled with throughout our history, greed and sexual morality. Greed and sexual morality. And uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, but the thing, the thing about Thyatira is, is that this was becoming not just practiced by the people in the church, this was becoming promoted by the leaders of the church. If you are in one of those churches, run, get out. 
Find a church that upholds Christian values and Christian teaching and believes that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There are lots of them, even in the mainline denomination, even in the Episcopal uh, Church in, of America, even in the United Methodist, uh, the other denominations, I don't like to name too many of them, but they are out there, and these are mainline denomination churches. There are a few of them that are still holding uh, to the Lord's word and still preaching the gospel. Find one of those churches if you need to belong to one of those denominations. If you don't need to belong to a denomination, come to Waters Church. You're <laughs> <laughs> in the New England area. Yeah, Welcome right. to come. So he says... Um, Verse 21, check out what he says. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual morality. Okay, pause here. Time to repent. So sometimes people think, well, God approves of it. Look, nothing's happening to us. Well, nothing's happening to you because God's giving you time to repent. And and this is so important for so many Christians because they they think they're getting away with some form of immorality. they're They're not. The Lord is going to be true to his word. The Lord is being patient with you. This is also in Romans chapter 2. The Lord's patience and kindness is what leads us to repentance. Never mistake God's silence on a certain um, condition of a church as God's approval of that church, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. He, he gives us time to repent. He's not going to come. He's not going to sit there with a with a with a bat and wait for us to make a mistake and then whack us upside. Well, the head. then even uh, even aside from a church, I remember when you were talking about looking at these churches as like a personal journey for individual Christians. Exactly. You know? Yes, and it can be an individual issue for you. But this, in, in this case, though, yeah. uh, we want to make sure that we're talking about the people that are not just. They're not participating in sexual morality. They are they are celebrating it and they are teaching it to God's people. So and God, this is in reference even the to the Lord people no in the church that. that are not doing the deeds. But just yeah, he's talking specifically. The church is in a mess because the leader, the self proclaimed prophetess, is leading them into this. Uh, into this, she's promoting it. She's teaching it. She's seducing. The word seducing is important there because it's not just teaching; it's seducing. And there is a seductive quality to sexual morality. There's a, uh, this is in Proverbs chapter six. It's alluring. Uh, even the proverb says that um, uh, something. What is it? Water stolen in secret tastes sweet. Sweeter, yeah. Right, and and yet it ends in death, and it becomes like uh, is, uh, dirt in your stomach, or so to speak. I forget what the exact words are from Proverbs six, but it's all there. Anyway, he says, Behold, verse 22, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into a great tribulation. Into great tribulation. We'll talk about great tribulation later on in this series. Unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead, all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give each of you according to your works. Yikes. Uh, this is, again, like I said, Jesus' firmest, strongest word to these churches and it's because this church is messing around with some serious sin. And not just messing around with it, but celebrating it. He says, I, I'm going to throw her onto a sickbed. That's because sexual sin leads to sickness. There is countless studies that prove this. Sexual morality is not good for your body. It hurts you. Uh, it hurts your soul. It hurts your being. It destroys your relationships. Um, some of my friends growing up in high school, I remember the sexual sin. Am I boring you? I'm sorry. <laughs> He just yawned. He just yawned. My brain needs more oxygen. I am offended. I am triggered. Now I am triggered. I hope you're not yawning as you watch this on YouTube or on Facebook. I'll try to to liven it up with some juicy material. Okay. Anyway, we're talking about sex and you're yawning. What is wrong with you? You're married. Okay. That's not what's wrong with you. That's what's right with you. That's what's right with you. This is derailed. Let's move on. (laughs) 
<laughs> he says, I will throw her onto a sick bed because there is physical harm and sickness that comes upon humans in sexual immoral living. Um, every once in a while, one of these famous people dies. Like, you know, uh, one of these famous rock stars. Freddie Mercury. Okay, yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> I have him <laughs> queued up here. Um, did, you, uh, think about, uh, no, did you see Bohemian Rhapsody yet? Not yet, but hold, hold that thought because Ooh. I got something to say about that. Right. Like Liberace, famous piano player, but, yeah. you know, rampant homosexual, yeah. you know, playboy homosexual, like the worst kind. You know, the, 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 the AIDS crisis, George uh, it, it really is in large part destroying the homosexual, especially the male homosexual community. Why? Because of the lifestyle that they live. It is not because people hate homosexuals. That's not why. It's because the lifestyle lends to immorality. I, I read a statistic somewhere. I forget, but it's like even with gay marriage, like the homosexual, uh, the, the homosexual adultery rate in male-male relationships is like 90%. Like wow. 90% of the time, they're sexually immoral outside of their marriage. And so, anyway, like Liberace, died young, died of AIDS. George Michael, incredible musician, dead, right? The music, you just mentioned Freddie Mercury, Bohemian yeah. Rhapsody. Have you seen it? Not yet. Well, I, I mean, I, I haven't seen it, but uh, he, here's an article from BuzzFeed News, and, and look what it says. This is the title of the article. <clears throat> Bohemian Rhapsody sells a sanitized vision of Freddie Mercury. This is from BuzzFeed, yeah, not a Christian... It. Not a Christian <laughs> publication. And even they're like, the movie really didn't tell the story the way it is. No. Because what has to happen is you got to sell tickets to this movie. Who buys most of the movie tickets? You know, people with families, uh, people with children, people with some semblance of, you know, fidelity, if you will. And they don't want to go and watch the real stuff that happened in his life, uh, the way in which he was sexually promiscuous, the way in which he met his uh homosexual lover, Jim Hutton, he met him at a club. The movie rewrites that script to say he met him at a home after a wild party the night before. So it kind of sanitizes that meeting. And this is BuzzFeed News saying that the, Bo the Bohemian Rhapsody retelling of Fred Freddie Mercury is sanitized. Why does it have to be sanitized? Because the lifestyle is not sanitized. Right, and actually, interestingly enough about that movie is the, um, <clears throat> so the, the current living members of uh, Queen... They don't. They obviously they didn't want to paint him in a in a bad light. Yeah, they, so they didn't want. To, to I, I read him. that too, right? Yeah, there's a few interviews with him too. Yeah, um, but it just it just it just points to the fact of what I'm trying to say to you. What it's not what I try to say. It's what the scriptures teach that the best, healthiest, greatest form of sexual activity is monogamy between a man and his wife <laughs> for life. I mean, if you don't mess around on your wife, it will go better for you. If you don't mess around on your husband, it will go better for you. I get it. Not all marriages are made in heaven. I get it. There are some of you that struggle with a loveless marriage. That's a terrible situation. But you do yourself far more good in the long term to avoid sexual morality and stay faithful to one partner for life. Okay. Anyway, going on. He says, uh, gave her time to repent. She refuses to repent. Behold, I'll throw her in a sick bed. I've already read that. I will strike her children dead. I mean, this is like... Jesus just being as, as clear as possible that he doesn't want this for you, Christian. He wants you to repent. He wants you to turn to him. He wants you to have freedom. Uh, and in receiving freedom, you uh, live a better life. Verse 24. But to the rest of you, now check this out. As bad as the news is for Thyatira, verse 24 says, but to the rest of you uh, in Thyatira, which means not everybody was drinking the Kool-Aid. <laughs> 
right? Not everybody was listening to the prophetess Jezebel. To the rest of you who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, important word there, the deep things of Satan, which means that this always comes across as some kind of new, deeper teaching. Watch out for that. He says, I say to you, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my words until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. In other words, you'll prosper. You'll have power for living. This is a euphemism. It means it's not, you're not literally going to be you know, president of the United States, but what it means is you're going to live with the authority that Christ gives you through the Holy Spirit to rule and reign over his good creation as his people. Uh, what Adam and Eve lost in the garden through sin, Jesus restores to us through perfect obedience, and that what they lost was what Jesus gained, which is the authority to lead a life of prosperity, a life of blessing, a life of God's glory, a life in which what you put your hand to prospers. This is Psalm 1 terminology, that blessed is the man that does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is on the law of the Lord all the day long. And on that law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of living water, which produces its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither and whatever he does, it shall prosper. Whew. Right? That's Proverbs, that's Psalm 1, saying that if you do life God's way, you will have authority with Jesus to rule over your life. Some of you, sexual, mora- sexual morality, the worst thing about it is it causes you to lie, it causes you to cut corners, it causes your brain to go crazy, it causes you to have to start managing all these things that you don't need to have to, you shouldn't be wasting your life managing. You should be living your life, doing your job, raising your kids, Growing your, your 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 financial life, if you will, your professional life, and sexual morality comes in and upends all that. And as the proverb says, it leads to death. It leads to the destruction of your own life. Anyway, he says, "I'll give you that authority over nations." And I just think that's a profound um, promise from Jesus to churches where to Christians in churches where you might be in one of those churches with liberal teaching concerning <clears throat> sexuality, and you think, how do I stay faithful? Jesus to you says, stay faithful to my word, and I will empower you, and I will, uh, I will bless you. Verse 27, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken to pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. So the authority of Jesus becomes the authority of his people as we honor him with our bodies and honor his word above the words of the false prophets of our day. And he says in verse 28, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, that's Thyatira. Not a great place to be. (laughs) No. (laughs) Well, it's even worse (laughs) as we get into Sardis. Uh, The church in Sardis, I call this, uh, looks alive but dead. And I only say that because that's what Jesus says about the church in Sardis. So let's read Revelation 3, 1 to 3. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your work complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Okay, so Sardis is one of two churches in the seven churches of Revelation that receives no praise from Jesus. Like even Thyatira says, uh, I know your works and your service and your love are all growing. Like even Thyatira gets some commendation from Jesus. There's none for Sardis. Why? Um, Sardis is in a terrible state of having a reputation of being alive, but they are dead. By the way, little wordplay on what Jesus is, right? He was dead, but now is alive. Sardis was alive 
and is like living in the past, so to speak, and they're actually dead. A uh, couple facts about Sardis, the city in ancient Rome, uh, sorry, ancient Asia Minor. Uh, largest uh, Jewish synagogue in the Roman Empire was located in Sardis. It was the length of a football field, and it was located in prime real estate. Why am I telling you this? Because it just kind of gives us an idea that the church and the Jewish people in Sardis were probably pretty well accepted in the city. They really didn't have conflict with the Roman imperial cult. They probably didn't have uh, too much, you know, uh, nobody really persecuted them. Like they were accepted, right? And so um, can I tell you that for the Christian, being accepted by your culture is not always the best thing for you. (laughs) In fact, the church, if you look over the history of the church, wherever the church has gotten power or acceptance by the culture around it, the church has died a slow spiritual death. Look at the church of the Middle Ages, if you will. Uh, the church that becomes the Roman Empire, that, that, that takes over the Roman Empire. The moment that the church became the state-sanctioned church of Rome, a case could be made that from that moment forward in, in church history, the church deteriorated because it loved power and influence in its culture um, through political means more than through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so in Sardis, they're a dead church, but they're living as though they're alive. Their reputation precedes them. Their reputation was of former days. And because they're not experiencing persecution, because they're relatively accepted by the culture around them, the Christians, Jesus is saying to them, you're comfortable. You've grown comfortable. You've grown complacent. You've grown, you know, weak in the faith. Uh, and I would like to just kind of repeat something that I said a couple, I think last episode, that when you face trouble and trial as a Christian, that's actually good for you. Our trials produce perseverance. Our trials produce character and hope, Romans 5. And sometimes, Christian, when you go through those hard moments, that's not a bad thing. That's actually God's, you know, Jim, his workout program for you to grow and strengthen your faith. If you're in that terrible work environment where people have no respect for you as a Christian, be encouraged. God is building your spiritual muscles. Don't give up. Stay strong. Conversely, if you're in a place where nobody has a problem with your Christianity, be careful because you can grow complacent. You can, And I think in many respects, this is the church in America. This is the church in our country because there really is no persecution, uh, real visible persecution against Christians in our country. And the question becomes, for me as a pastor, is that because our, um, is that because Christianity is acceptable, or is that because we have watered down Christianity to a comfortable uh, a comfortable level where our culture around us is not um, confronted by what Jesus teaches? And I think especially when it comes to money, like when we talk about money in the church, and when I talk about money as a pastor, this is when people, you know, this is when people shriek the most. Like, oh, he's talking about money. The church just wants my money. No, no, you're cheap. That's what it is. You're cheap with God. And you don't want anybody to touch your money. And I got news for you. According to the scriptures, it's not your money. It's God's money. That's Psalm 24. The whole earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything you have belongs to God. But anyway, I wonder if sometimes we preach these messages that don't challenge people. We, we, we lead churches that don't challenge people to put Jesus on the throne of their lives. And because the church is comfortable uh, with their comfortable message, it's, it's compatible with the messages of the world around us. And I think that that's a dangerous place to be. Jesus says, 
you are dead to the church in Cyrus, Sardis because you are accepted by your culture. Not a good place to be. Yeah. Rep, reputation. You have the reputation of being life, but you are dead. Think about the word reputation. Reputation is based on what you did when? Before. In the past. Right. Right? Jesus is concerned about your present. And there are a lot of Christians and a lot of churches that are thinking, well, oh, I, you know, I was part of that movement. I was there and I didn't. And, and, and it's great, but don't ride the waves of your past. Embrace what God might want you to do in your present. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yep. Ravi Zacharias, I was listening to his podcast. Great podcast, by the way. You should listen to it. Yeah, it's good. Uh, what's it called? It's RZIM. It's called... Um, um, uh, I forget. Anyway, I was listening to his podcast, and he talks about the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. Uh, this is in Jerusalem. I have a picture of it here. Let my people think. Let my people think, yes. Okay. So on that podcast, he talks about the Church in the Holy, of the Holy Sepulcher, Sepulcher, which is where I was. I was. This is in Jerusalem. Uh, this is the, where the Catholics believe Jesus was buried and rose again, uh, and also where Jesus was crucified. So they have a little hill in, inside the church. There's a place you can climb up where he was crucified, and then you can go down the stairs, and there's, a, there's this now, it's now an ornate tomb that has been redesigned and decorated where they believe Jesus was buried. Anyway... He talks about when he went there, he found out, and I didn't see this. I didn't know this. Uh, currently, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, now think about this. This is where we commemorate Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Pro the, the most important event in human history, especially for the church, right? This church sits on that site. And Ravi Zacharias shares about the fact that there are six Christian denominations that have some stake of ownership in the church, in the church facility, on the grounds, right? Yeah. Now, that's not a problem. Who cares about that? Six different denominations own the church. So what? Including a Muslim group, by the way. <laughs> anyway, um, here's the kicker. None of the groups talk to each other. <laughs> they don't talk to each other. Like, I know we all believe that he died and rose again to bring us all together, but I ain't talking to you. you know? <laughs> this, is, this is, I just, I think about this. This is a classic example of a church that can be based on where, where God did something in the past, but his spirit left long ago because people became enamored with themselves or being comfortable with the culture. Like, don't be like this, Christian. I have another picture of it here. This is the picture I took. I was right there. That's a picture from my phone. Wow. Um, beautiful location. Uh, beautiful, beautiful place. But just a reminder, a stark reminder that you can have a reputation as a church and be riding on the past rather than embracing what God is doing in your future. Okay, in your present. So um, what does Jesus say to the church in Sardis? He says, you have a few names. Uh, you have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, uh, and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. We talked about that two episodes ago. You can find out about what that means there. He says, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear. <clears throat> okay, think about this. As there was in Thyatira, where they were teaching God's people to engage in sexual morality, so there are in Sardis a few people who still serve the Lord which is profoundly encouraging because it teaches us this. Even in a dead church, there are still alive Christians. There are still Christians who will be faithful in the midst of that 
terrible, you know, community, if you will. I would like to say this, though, because it's very important. And, and maybe you might have felt that I did this earlier in the episode, but let me just say, don't judge every person in a church based on what you've heard about that particular church or denomination. Even in the mainline churches today, there's lots of faithful Christians. Even in uh, churches that disagree with us about profoundly important theological issues, there are faithful Christians. I even like to think that even in some whacked out cults out there. <laughs> I believe that there are some faithful Christians who pretty much ignore the craziness that their cult leader teaches them and have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. I like to think that God has a people even in those places because the Lord knows those who are his. So don't lump all Baptists in one category. Don't lump all Pentecostals in one category. Don't lump all the prosperity preaching churches in one category. Don't lump all Catholics in one category. And don't lump all non-denominational churches in one category. Um, my grandfather was famous for saying this, and I want to put it up on the screen. The Lord has a church in every church. The Lord has a church, capital C, meaning people that belong to Jesus, in every church, lowercase c, uh, institution of man. But what should you do if you are in one of those churches uh, where it's the leadership is corrupt and the denomination or, or the church itself has left the gospel long ago and you want to be faithful, well, here's what he says to the church in Sardis, to those uh, who were living in the dead church. He says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Um, and he's referencing, and this, this also applies to those who, uh, he says, a few names in Sardis who have not soiled their garment. So, it only takes a few Christians who love the Lord in a dead church to wake up the church and turn it around. This is the profoundly positive message to the church in Sardis. You don't need the leaders necessarily to have an awakening. You don't need the whole church to have a revival. You just need those few to say, let's pray and let's get alone with God and let's ask God to change the situation because this is not good. Right? Like, think about the Bible. The scriptures are, are replete with stories about God uses the few. He uses Noah and his three sons to save the world. He used Abraham and his wife Sarah to save the world. He used David and his 30 mighty men to lead Israel back to God after the horrible episode of the judges. It only took Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Esther, four people, four people, to basically guide God's nation out of 70 years of Babylonian exile and back into their land. Four people. I mean, in, in case in point, Jesus takes 12 men, fishermen, tax collectors, ordinary nobodies, and literally turns the world upside down. 12 men. Why? Because God does not need um, popular opinion to produce powerful results. Amen. We should tweet that. That's, that's good. <laughs> He doesn't need everybody doing what he wants. He just needs a few. And so if you are one of those people and you're in a church and it's like, man, I can't go to another church because there's another no church in my area that's alive. Well, you get alone with God and you pray and you ask God, wake you up and be part of the movement that God wants to do in your area. It only takes a few faithful Christians to turn around a spiritually dead area. Okay, so the last thing I want to say about these uh, three, the last three churches that we talked about. 
Um, let's look at this trajectory here up on the screen. Uh, remember, last week we talked about Pergamum. They tolerated immorality. Then you talk about Thyatira, the next church on the list. They taught immorality. And then you have Sardis, the dead church. And you could make a case here that you move from tolerating immorality in your church to teaching immorality in your church to becoming a dead church. This is the trajectory. A lot of commentators talk about this trajectory between these through these three churches in Revelation chapter two and three, and it is a slow fade. And so I have this little graphic. Watch this; it's up on the screen. Where is <laughs> where is the church in America? If you're if you're listening still on the podcast, you won't see this, but watch that. Look at that. The magic of keynote. <laughs> is this the trajectory of the church in America? <laughs> is this the trajectory? I I'll mean, start again. Yeah, it starts again. I can I can do this for the rest of the episode. Just okay. Anyway, um, is this a trajectory for the church in America? We've got to see our opportunity here. Jesus says, "You faithful few, serve me and do uh, do do my work and follow me and trust me." Okay, this brings me to a segment I want to do. Uh, we do this segment a couple of weeks ago. We did this segment a couple of weeks ago. Let's do. Can I do that? Okay, here's the can I do that question today. The church I go to is compromised and spiritually dead. Should I change churches? Good question, right? Um, and, I, and I feel for the Christians out there who are in that kind of situation. Uh, I would say this. If you can find a church that's alive in your area, then go. Yeah. I would say that because I think that, well, all right. Because that you just mentioned too that God uses some people who are alive to yeah. rejuvenate the dead church. So if all the yeah. alive people leave, then the because I think you dead. have to look at it like this: when we say churches, we yeah. think of buildings, right? But in the first century, the church didn't have buildings; they didn't have property rights; they didn't have tax exemptions; they didn't have denominations; they had homes. And the church in the first century met in two places. They either met in local synagogues, which were Jewish, and by Revela- by the time book- the book of Revelation is written, uh, the Christians were basically getting kind of like the cold shoulder from the Jewish faithful and getting kind of cast out of the synagogue because they were Christians uh, and they were Jews. And so they were kind of getting disowned by their own. And so where would they meet? They had no building. They had to go to their homes. And so they broke bread in their homes. Well, when Jesus says to, now you got to think about this. When Jesus says to the church in Sardis, to the church in Pergamum, to the church in Thyatira, he's not talking about a church that meets in a singular building on a street in the city. He's talking about the whole church in the city, wherever they meet. And so I think about this. The comparative would be that if Jesus was writing letters to his church in America, he may write like seven letters to the church in America. He might write to the church in New England, right? And then he would write to the church in the East Coast or the Mid-Atlantic States, to the church in the Bible Belt, to the church in the Western Frontier, to the church in the Midwest, to the church in the Rockies, right? That's what I would. That's how I see. That's yeah. how I think. Anyway, so I think about this like, if you're in New England and Jesus is about that area, like you're spiritually dead. I think New England is a good example of Sardis because we have this past reputation of being alive. This is where in New England where the Great, great Awakenings happened, you know, in the 1700s and the 1800s. But now it's kind of like post-Christian, if you will, for the rest of the country. But if Jesus was to write to us and say, you're spiritually dead, you have this reputation, you know, okay, how do you change churches? You would have to move to... We're moving to Orange County. Yeah, move to some <laughs> other area of the nation. Well, that's not feasible for you. So that's why I say, 
Um, this is how I see it now. I hope that's clear because here's what I say. This, that's why I say in your region, in your area, if it's feasible for you to find a good gospel preaching alive church, yeah, yeah, move. Get out of the dead church and move on and use your, and think about this, you're tithing, you're giving your money to something. Well, what are you giving your money to? Are you giving your money to a church where there's people getting saved and lives are getting changed and marriages are getting healed and people are getting healed of cancer and all kinds of things like that are happening? Or are you giving your money to a church that's just denominationally laden and is dead and nobody's getting saved, no baptism. They haven't had a baptism since 1947 and nobody, you know, hardly ever shows up for Sunday morning worship. And it's like, well, do you really want to support that and continue to fund that? Or do you want to, you know, fund where, where people are getting transformed in Jesus? Yeah. So that's my, that's my admonition to those of you, you go to a church that's compromised spiritually dead. Don't think of these churches in Revelation as little buildings that Jesus is talking to uh, on the street corners in these cities. He's talking about the whole church in that era. Uh, and, and that's how I would see it. Anyway, Revelation. Uh, do we have time for chur- the church in Philadelphia? It's 52 minutes. Do we have time? Sure. Yeah. All right. Well, the church time. in Philadelphia, let's talk about it. this. Is the church between uh, <clears throat> New York City and Washington, D.C., home of the defending Super Bowl champion Eagles uh, football team. It's home of the Liberty Bell, Independence Hall, and has a very unhealthy fascination with cheesesteak sandwiches, mostly because none of the rest of the food in the city is good. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of cheese, man, <laughs> that, was, that was pretty cheesy. <laughs> oh, I am one hilarious podcast host i tell you <laughs> i tell you anyway god so stupid <laughs> <laughs> to the church to the angel let's read this to the, the i call this the open door church jesus says to the uh angel of the church in philadelphia write the words of the holy one the true one who has the key of david who opens and no one will shut who shuts and no one opens i know your works behold i have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know you have but little power, but yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Okay. The church in Philadelphia is one of only two churches in the seven church list that Jesus does not correct. And the reason why he does not correct them is because they also are facing enormous persecution in Philadelphia. So again, think of this as regional churches, right? And in the region of Philadelphia, this uh, is about, I think, 45 miles southeast of Sardis. Just a little ways away, there is a church where Christian persecution is amped up. And Jesus said to them, here's who I am. I am the Holy One. I am the True One. I have the key of David, and I open what no one will shut, and I shut what no one will open. And he says, I open for you an open door. Now, when Jesus says, I'm the one who opens, I have the keys of David, he's referring to the ancient position of the major domo, the major domo. And this was what in is a, a domo. It's, I'm going to explain it. The, oh. the na- it's a name for the official in a palace who determines who may enter and who may not. And oh, also right. the person who has charge over all the resources of the king's uh, kingdom. So Jesus says, now think about what Jesus is saying here, because this, perf- this is profoundly important. He says, I'm the one with the keys. Over what? over the key of David. I'm the one who says who gets into God's family, and I'm the one who says who doesn't get into God's family. Now, the phrase that Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That phrase gets a lot of hate from the 
everybody gets to heaven crowd, mm. right? It doesn't matter if you're Muslim, Hindu, Jewish, atheist, agnostic, hey, even Hitler, we're all going to heaven, right? I mean, it's craziness. Um, that, that verse, John 14, 6, I'm the way, truth, and life, that gets a lot of hate. But think about what Jesus is saying here. <laughs> it's almost even more, more like offensive to the everybody gets to heaven crowd. He says, I'm the one with the key. No one gets in without me. That's basically what he's saying there. It's, power, it's profound. And he says, for you guys in Philadelphia, I open a door for you. Now, this, I believe this means that what Jesus is saying to the church in Philadelphia is, even, if you're per, even though you're persecuted, I'm going to open doors for you uh, to share the gospel. And no one is going to be able to shut the opportunity for you to share the gospel, which is really positive for Philadelphia because what Philadelphia is experiencing is persecution. And Jesus says, in spite of the persecution, I'm going to make the gospel heard in your city. Uh, the phrase open door is what I'm focusing on there in verse eight, because that is a term that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 16, nine, when he talks about a door, a wide door of effective work has been opened to me and there are many adversaries um, he's talking about the open door for missionary activity. Um, so the open door was a reality because in the first century, Christianity spreads like wildfire across the Roman world. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of uh, contingencies that were in place in the first century for Christianity. Think about it. Christianity spreads from Jerusalem all the way to Rome within 300 years. And people don't understand, what were the contingencies that were in place? You know that phrase in Galatians where it says, in the fullness of time, God sent his son? You know that phrase, right? Well, the fullness of time is important because uh, when Christianity takes root in the Roman world, you have uh, several contingencies. Number one, you have Pax Romana. is a 200-year span of total peace throughout the Roman Empire. 200 years of peace. If you don't have peace, you can't preach the gospel. That's what Pax Romana provided the Christian church. Uh, you have... The Diaspora, which is the dispersed Jewish people uh, under Alexander the Great, who they spread from Israel all the way over, all over the Roman Empire for a better life um, because they were persecuted from, by some Roman emperors. And the, so they bring with them the Old Testament, got the Old Testament writings, the Old Testament books. And that influence is already in place in a lot of those cities. And then you have the decline of paganism, which a lot of historians say this. In the Roman world in the first century, uh, paganism and Greek mythology, these were in decline. As much as they were still active and participated in, they were actually in decline. And so people were ready for a new religious faith system. And you think about how in all those three contingencies all come together in the first century for God to set up his people to go out into the world and share that the one who fulfills those Old Testament scriptures is Jesus Christ who died and rose again. And so that's how you have it. Like This is the fullness of time that the scriptures are talking about. This is the open door that Jesus is talking about. And I say all that to say this, that Jesus uses the means uh, of our age to give us opportunities to spread the gospel. Case in point, the deep end. <laughs> you know, I, it's like... We have an open door through technology today, through the internet, through the tools that I'm using on this desk, through the tools that you are watching and listening to this podcast through, these incredible tools, and a shot of our tech team again, see the tools. Lots of money, 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 everywhere, money, I see money. Anyway, <laughs> important tools though, important tools, you got to pay uh, to make it happen, but I was, I was thinking about this, Josh. When I first got into the ministry, it was 1998. 
I was uh, 21 years old. Wet, wet behind the ears. Wow. Yeah. Um, I think I was in fifth grade. Yeah. My beard was not existent back then. Anyway, uh, <laughs> got into the ministry. And the first Christian conference that I went to, I'll never forget this. The first Christian conference, it was a de- denominational conference. I was new. I was, I was uh, just recently installed as the youth pastor at this church. And the leader of the in- denomination gets up, and I'll never forget his words. He said, God cursed the internet. <laughs> and I was sitting there saying, really? Like, we, don't we want to use the internet? Like, why, why don't we use it to spread the message of Jesus? Like, this is, I, I get frustrated with people who moralize amoral things. Mm. Like, people will moralize the internet. The internet's evil. Well, no, it's not. It's an amoral object that we could use for evil or we could use for good, right? Uh, a knife. A knife can cut the Thanksgiving turkey. Or it could chop up your spouse in a bunch of pieces. (laughs) (laughs) Choose the first option. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? How about about guns? Or guns. Guns are amoral instruments. They can hunt Mm. and you you can get something to eat or you can shoot your fellow man in cold blood. And or you could defend a nation with a gun. Amoral objects that you can use for good or for evil. The internet is the same thing. And I think about this in our day. Uh, as Christians, we have an open door. The internet, the Deep End Podcast. Share it with your friends. Like, subscribe, click on the bell notification. Do all that stuff we're talking about. Why? Because this helps get the message out. Uh, let's close this up and then we're done. Um, because you have kept my word about patience, endurance, patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the world uh, to try to, to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. And my own new name, he who has an ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, I got some more to say. We, we can talk about this next week, the pre-trib rapture and the whole layout for Revelation time. Now, I know, this is what you're all dying for. This is what you're waiting for. Yeah, finally. Okay, tell me when the rapture is going to happen. Okay, I'm ready for that. Uh, does Jesus come first, and then the tribulation, and then whatever? Okay, I understand. You're all you're all like really excited about that. Well, guess what? Next week we start that. I I go uh, in the deep end podcast. I go verse by verse through these books because this I I love Bible study, and this is another opportunity for you to have good Bible study. Uh, I think good Bible. Study. Yeah, and that means you um, need to share with your friends and more subscribers. Yeah, yeah. and so <laughs> we'll talk about. Uh, whether you're going to be saved from the rapture or going to have to go th- uh, saved from the tribulation or go through it next week uh, on the deep end. Okay, uh, wait, before we close, just remember, log on to facebook.com, the deep end TV, youtube.com, waters church, uh, slash waters church, uh, or make it easy on yourself, the deep end.tv. We will see you next week on the deep end. <laughs>